This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. We need to be on the leading edge of technology development, whether it's artificial technology, whether it's quantum technologies, we need to be on the leading edge so that we are in a commanding position to understand where the trend lines are going, to also understand what we need to do to deter and defend. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. The 2021 Future Strategy Forum focused on the nexus between national security and technology. This Smart Women, Smart Power podcast features my closing keynote conversation with Rose Gottmuller, the former Deputy Secretary General of NATO. She's currently a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and a Payne Distinguished Lecturer at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. We discussed emerging technologies and nuclear weapons. The first question I want to ask you is about what are the challenges and the opportunities that exist in terms of emerging technologies and disruptive technologies in terms of the nuclear space and nuclear weapons specifically? To answer that question, I want to refer to, uh, I think it's a really interesting and and in some ways amusing study. Many of you will know it. It's uh, Emerging and Disruptive Technologies, Multi-Domain Complexity and Strategic Stability, a review and assessment of the literature. Brad Roberts and his team at the Center for Global Security Research at Lawrence Livermore did it, and it was published in February. It is, well, I will say it's amusing because it's clear that there are no fixed views of where emerging and disruptive technologies are taking us. And I think that's been a theme you've been discussing over the last two days, but it's also very applicable to the nuclear realm. Uh, some of the uh, authors that uh, that they reviewed, that the Livermore team reviewed, said it's going to lead to faster nuclear ex- escalation. Other authors said it's going to lead to a slowdown in nuclear escalation. So I think that is really a thumbnail sketch of where these uh, technologies are taking us with regard to nuclear weapons. And it behooves us as policymakers, also as as analysts, as as those who are thinking through the implications of these technologies to, to really pay attention to, well, stopping or putting barriers in the way of the negative developments that may ensue, like faster escalation. And I know for that reason, so many are thinking about how to do better now on uh, confidence building, mutual transparency and predictability, looking for measures to hamper crisis developing into conflict and, and heaven forbid to nuclear escalation. So I think it does place added responsibility on the shoulders of, of our community But nevertheless, I do want to really stress as we begin that there are two sides of this picture. One is a negative picture, but the other might be quite a positive picture. And we'll delve into that a little bit deeper in just a moment. I also want to specifically ask you about threats associated with emerging and disruptive technologies and how the U.S. should prepare to deal with them. Are we prepared? Are we preparing? We're definitely preparing. And the answer to your question uh, revolves around redundancy and resilience. I think we absolutely, well, we have to be very good. uh, And I really want to applaud the speaker in the previous panel who talked about 
the importance of careers in cybersecurity. We need all the talent we can get in that realm. But cybersecurity uh, must be at the forefront, and the U.S. must be on the leading edge of providing for security for our cyber networks overall. That's just one example. But in general, we need to be on the leading edge of technology development, whether it's artificial technology, whether it's quantum technologies, we need to be on the leading edge so that we are in a commanding position to understand where the trend lines are going, to also understand what we need to do to deter and defend, but also what we may uh, need to do in terms of, of providing for the continuity of our own, of our own state. And um, in that uh, arena, we cannot let the race get beyond us. We need to be involved and, and engaged in uh, the leading edge of technological development. But uh, in terms of the tools that we have available to us, some are very simple tools that we've been using all along, and we use them very much in the era of Soviet war fighting, when we expected the Soviet Union to use nuclear weapons from one end of the escalation ladder to the other as a tool of war fighting. And in that really dire environment, we had to focus on resilience and redundancy. And I think it's the same thing today. And I place particular emphasis on the resilience and redundancy of uh, our networks. Uh, and uh, in those networks, our command and control capabilities, so many of which today are dependent uh, both on computer networks, but also on space-based assets. So we really do have to emphasize those simple tools of resilience and redundancy. And what about threats from adversaries that we should be concerned about in terms of their development of emerging technologies? Well, that's why it's so important to stay on the leading edge so we know what the other guy's doing and so that we have early warning if uh, developments are heading in a particular uh, direction with regard to weaponization or with regard to military tactics and strategy. Uh, it's important for us to understand what the other guy is up to. Some of that is old-fashioned, of course, uh, intelligence gathering, and uh, states will continue to do that. But I think really having that understanding uh, of where uh, science is leading, what kinds of technological developments are out there, what the, the scope uh, is of their development is, is super important, because otherwise we will not fully understand what kinds of threats may be coming at us. You said just a moment ago that there seem to be two camps uh, in the emerging technology field, those who um, are concerned about the, the potentially negative uh, implications of emerging technology in the nuclear sphere, and then those who see lots of positive opportunities. And you talked about this in a lecture last month, and while you were talking about this, you raised a number of questions in that lecture. So I'm, I'm going to ask you those questions and see, uh, see what your, your thoughts are. One of the questions you, you said that needed to be considered, will such emerging technologies, and just for those who are listening, we're talking about AI, machine learning, quantum computing, all of that. Are these technologies going to underpin more risk-taking or less? In other words, is it going to make uh, is it going to make us more willing to take risks because we have the technology, or perhaps less willing to take risks because we're concerned uh, about the implications? I think it's impossible to answer that question, Beverly, because it's so scenario dependent uh, that it, it really, I think, will will depend quite a bit on what the overarching circumstances are, uh, what, again, what the adversary is up to. 
uh, what our capabilities are. I'm not trying to duck the question, but I do want to stress, you said, you know, I seem to indicate that people fall into two camps. Again, I don't think people are consistent in their views. Experts are consistent in their views. It's not, not like someone is over here on the, on the sunny side of the street saying it's this is all going to be great and there are no problems, and, and the other side of the street are the Cassandras. I think, I think people really look at these different technologies and try to balance opportunity and risk, challenge and risk in looking at them, and in particular circumstances. I was uh, quoting uh, the Livermore study because in that particular circumstance, people were looking at uh, nuclear escalation mm -hmm. and what might be the challenges and opportunities there. And as I said, some saw the brakes being put on, some saw an opportunity for acceleration and even uncontrolled acceleration, uncontrolled escalation. So, but I don't think there are actually two camps. I think it is very dependent on uh, the scenario, on the technology, on the challenges, on the threat environment. How do you foresee emerging technologies uh, uh, helping decision makers? Will the, will it be will it make them be able to make more precise or more well uh, analyzed decisions, or will the basically the new technologies add to the information overload that a lot of people feel technology brings already? Well, of course, we have to be very mindful of the potential of information overload. But I, I am just going to use a very simple example to juxtapose the Cold War with today, and that is the Cuban Missile Crisis, which many experts uh, on this call will be familiar with and have analyzed at depth. But we all realize how very little information Kennedy and Khrushchev had to go on, and they were making use of uh, proxies, they were making use of, of some behind-the-scenes communication, but they were really judging the situation uh, on the basis of, of very little uh, understanding of the dynamics inside the Kremlin, inside the White House, but also, uh, as we found out later, on faulty uh, intelligence information. Today, we have the opportunity with this enormous amount of information, as well as, uh, again, the resiliency and redundancy of communication links to really, I think, be able to handle and to manage a crisis a lot better. So I do tend to be among those who see opportunity in the, uh, in the very uh, large amount of information available, as well as the communication tools available to leaders to really head off disaster in future. But a lot depends on, again, having the analytic tools to really make that usable information. And the analytic tools in, in, present in big data analysis, they are there, they are present. So we just have to figure out how to prioritize and how to really get the leaders the information they need. Uh, that is going to be all important in, in the upcoming period. Uh, but in general, I feel like uh, we, we should be able to manage and handle information overload as long as we are uh, doing the analysis right and understanding, again, it comes down to what does a, a, what does a decision maker need to make the right decision and not just you know, throwing a lot of stuff at him or her and certainly not in the middle of a crisis. It, will autonomous systems threaten the role of humans in managing and steering conflict? Or are we way not far away we, from that? Not if we don't let them. <laughs> I know there's always a huge debate about, uh, well, we used to say a man in the loop, uh, keeping uh, humans in the loop. Uh, I do think that that's important. Again, I understand the challenges that are out there as uh, autonomous systems drive action 
uh, faster and faster. Uh, there's no question that it becomes more difficult to keep a human in, in the loop. But I think that we, we have agency in this. Uh, as, as humans, we have agency in this, and we need to be mindful at every step of the way and not allow ourselves to become entrapped by the notion of uh, automaticity uh, driving and particularly driving crisis and conflict that could lead to a nuclear exchange. That is just, that's a recipe for the destruction of, of the human race. So we cannot allow that to happen, but we have agency here. And so we need to be mindful and, and, uh, and keep, our, uh, keep our eye on what we need to accomplish in terms of constraining and, and controlling these technologies. So no worries about robots taking away decision-making power. Again, not if we don't let them. Not if we don't let them. Um, there are some who are concerned that the technologies may somehow make the use of nuclear weapons more possible. What are your thoughts on that? Does it make it more or or, or could it in fact make it less? There's been a certain amount of debate and discussion about uh, the potential now for resuming uh, approaches that would allow for retaliation no matter what happens. And I'm talking about the so-called dead hand technologies uh, that uh, the Soviets developed such a system evidently. Uh, so that is a worry and I think we need to be aware and this is why it is so important that this be uh, an international discussion and a discussion that involves uh, the community of leaders uh, in, engaged uh, from the kind of normative side of things down to talking about specifically perhaps some regulatory measures over time, that we do not want to see this kind of technology become widespread and certainly, as I said, in a way that would uh, permit uh, a nuclear uh, a nuclear exchange to escalate out of the control of all of all human uh, all human agency. So this this is, I think, where we need to really draw the line, and it's a dead serious matter. I have actually been glad to see the degree to which uh, already some uh, leaders of, of the nuclear weapon states are beginning to talk about the necessity of nuclear command and control uh, being uh, in a kind of uh, protected zone where we are not trying to mess with the NCA, with the uh, National Command Authority, the Nuclear Command and Control of other states uh, as it might be hosted, for example, on space-based assets. So already there is some discussion of this, some awareness developing, and it's not, well, it, it may be at the moment a bit of the technological Wild West, but it, it is a moment at which I think people are beginning to think that we, in fact, need to have uh, some agreement uh, among ourselves that nuclear command and control needs to be in a protected state and that we should not be undermining each other's capabilities in this regard. Let me follow up just a bit. You mentioned the, the need for international uh, uh, conversation in this area. Are those kinds of talks happening at the, at the level and rate that they, that they should be as these emerging technologies continue to de develop and develop rapidly? There is an international conversation that has been going on for a long time. I do believe it is, it is too routinized. Uh, obviously, in Geneva, there are uh, venues in which the um, uh, systems of uh, 
automatic uh, automatic weapons, uh, not automatic weapons like guns, but I'm talking about autonomous weapons, sorry, uh, have been taking place for some period of time. But I do feel like this is a, a moment at which we need to, we need to uh, kick this conversation up and make it less routinized. And for that reason, as I said, I've begun to welcome uh, some of the higher level attention to this matter and the notion that perhaps this should be a topic for strategic stability talks for example, between the United States and Russia or among the P5 states, US, China, UK, France, uh, and Russia, so that we have a discussion going on at a higher level and with more attention to it. I take my hat off to those who have been involved for many years in the Geneva venues, in the Geneva talks. It's been very important and has laid some important groundwork. It's laid out some important definitions. Uh, all of this very important work, but I do think it's time that, that we kick it to a higher level. We have a, a question from the audience, and, and thank you very much, uh, Hiroki, for this question. Uh, should the impacts and implications of China's rapid nuclear and conventional armament development and rise in asymmetric military capability be discussed as part of the U.S.-Russia dialogue? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think that uh, there's already, as uh, viewers will be aware, a conversation among the P5 on strategic stability issues. I do think my personal view as a diplomat is bilateral matters should be kept in a bilateral uh, in a bilateral forum, and so the United States. Uh, can and should talk with China, it can and should talk with Russia. At some point we may decide that we want to get together and have a trilateral discussion, and I do hope that we will continue to have a P5 discussions of, of stability matters. To be honest with you, I don't believe that uh, Russia would be willing to have a, a really intensive conversation on these matters without China in the room. Uh, but uh, it's it's a matter of diplomatic practice also to say, does it make sense for Russia and the United States to be talking about China without China in the room on these particular kinds uh, of issues that are so important to strategic stability overall? And uh, Hiroki asks another question um, along these lines. What aspects of arms control, emerging technologies, and security domains in combat should be addressed in the U.S.-Russia strategic stability dialogue? They are going to begin with nuclear, and we saw that in the early exchanges, the telephone conversation between President Biden and President Putin. They have been talking about addressing uh, really that uh, overhang of the nuclear weapon of mass destruction and what needs to be done both to develop a follow-on agreement after the new START treaty, but also then to expand uh, the agenda of strategic stability talks to discuss any, any number of topics, including some of these new technologies, such as the expansion of space-based uh, assets, space-based capabilities. So I think that... Um, this will be, you know, obviously a priority for the two presidents. Uh, it is a different question whether we should be getting into talking in that venue about uh, cyber technology, for example. And many experts argue that, yes, indeed, it is relevant to the traditional uh, venue of strategic stability. And indeed, we need to bring it in because of that impact I was talking about a moment ago, that very capable cyber, cap very safe, capable cyber means can be used to uh, to undermine your uh, nuclear uh, command and control. So yes, perhaps it is relevant. I have to say I'm not 
quite there yet myself. And I do think that here is an area where we've had very, very good discussions on cyber technology, cyber, uh, cyber uh, confidence building measures over the years with the Russians. Uh, we've done it not only on a bilateral basis, the U.S. and Russia, but also in the U.N. setting, a U.N. group of government experts, as well as uh, a separate venue in the U.N., and also the OSCE in, Gen in, sorry, in Vienna. The Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe has had a very good discussion going on over the years and has accomplished some gains on cyber, uh, cyber confidence building. So... Frankly, to be honest with you, I'm not quite sure in this arena. I'd be glad to hear from, from listeners today what they think about this matter. Is the, the whole development of the cyber arena and the cyber threats affecting uh, nuclear weapon systems, is this something that, that really brings this topic into traditional strategic stability talks, or do we continue to handle it in a different venue? And to be honest with you, I'm still on the fence about that. Well, if I could press you a little bit on the on the the cyber threat uh, uh, issue, um, the threats are developing in the cyber sphere almost as fast as the technology, or perhaps even faster than the technology can be developed to deal with the 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 cyber threats. And how 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 can we keep up with the threats? and be prepared to deal with them, um, particularly if you have adversaries who use cyber activities in order to uh, create issues. And you know, when do you get to a point that you decide how, do you, how should a country respond to a cyber attack? And this is not only in the nuclear sphere, but you know, writ large. Um, I would love to get your thoughts on, on that because this is a threat that is ever present and is only increasing. Absolutely. And I will refer to my experience at NATO, where we created cyber as a domain of operations. You, Of course, you have to take it seriously. That means keeping uh, a very uh, keen eye on developments constantly, but also beginning to develop your, your tools so that you can be able to to address the threats, deal with the threats as they happen. Every big institution around the world, military, non-military, it doesn't matter, is under constant cyber attacks today. So it behooves any institution to, to be on top of this problem. That means uh, you know, the best possible cybersecurity means and methods, again, NATO paying very close attention to that. But then thinking through a domain of operations, if we are moving from war I'm sorry, from peace through crisis to war, what does that mean uh, for NATO? And that places the cyber domain on a spectrum from, uh, again, conventional means, uh, including cyber means, space-based assets. Uh, it really puts all the tools in your toolbox uh, on the table so that they are available for you in order to respond. Now, this is quite controversial. People wonder, would, uh, a response be kinetic ever to a cyber attack? Well, I think the important uh, aspect of trying to build up deterrence in this area is to ensure that this spectrum of deterrence is, is recognized and acknowledged as, as being there. And that's why I think it's important to think about cyber as a domain of operation. We do so in NATO, we do so in the United States uh, as well, and to develop all those tools so that you can hope to deter and if you can't deter, that you can defend. And uh, so it's it's a complex problem. It's a very difficult problem. But it is an everyday problem now. 
you know, NATO uh, is constantly under uh, pressure from not only cyber attacks, but the full panoply of hybrid threats. And that includes misinformation campaigns. Of course, cyber plays a big role in those as well. But, uh, you know, this is the reality of the situation today. And so um, military institutions worldwide are, are dealing with them. And I uh, can only hope we'll get better as time goes on. You mentioned the, the spectrum of potential responses. I, I guess, and maybe I should know the answer to this question, but is there ever a cyber threat or attack that could be carried out that would indeed prompt a NATO country, this country, to respond in, 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 in a military way? Well, if you're talking about kinetic attacks, it, it connect, yes, yeah. kinetic. I what I want to just stress that I don't I don't want to uh, to uh, think about hypotheticals and and in any way give any ideas here that uh, I'm unclear of because we're talking about a hypothetical situation. But but that is the importance again of including uh, among the domains of operations uh, cyber means and methods in the domain of operations uh, domains of operation along with conventional along with space-based assets, along uh, with, uh, heaven forbid, nuclear assets as well. It's all part of uh, the spectrum of deterrence that, that is available. And so it means that we have various tools with which we deal with these, uh, these kinds of threats, these kinds of attacks. But I don't want to speculate about any particular scenario because uh, I don't know how NATO would respond, nor do I know how the United States would respond. Well, something that you did work on, or at least this was going on at NATO while you were there, was the Russian use of information warfare tools uh, against NATO allies. Um, what's the potential impact of information warfare in the nuclear space, and does it increase the risk of any type of accidental escalation? Well, I think, you know, information warfare is... Uh, Again, it's always with us. It has been, uh, well, uh, I think about the Trojan horse as being an aspect of information warfare. Uh, we always used to call that one of the original hybrid threats, but probably even farther back to the caveman days, these kinds of threats were available where you try to psych out your opponent. And uh, you do that by, uh, by trying to trick him uh, with misinformation at the end of the day. And so it's always with us and it's something that we have to try to understand. But I think that makes it so important that we continue to depend on multiple phen phenomenology when we make decisions about nuclear response, that we not take uh, a single piece of information, a single warning indicator, that there be multiple sources of warning, multiple indicators and then we make the decision to respond. In this case, you have to be absolutely as certain as you can that actually a nuclear attack is underway. And that is, I think, you know, the, the fact of this weapon of mass destruction that you cannot afford to make these kinds of mistakes. You cannot afford to act on misinformation. So multiple sources of warning, multiple phenomenology, these are all important to any decision-making that would go toward, uh, toward, heaven forbid, again, a nuclear use. And given that technology changes so quickly, what are the implications in the near term for policymakers who are working on nuclear strategy? <laughs> try to stay on top of the game. It takes me back to my earliest, earliest point. The United States of America cannot 
afford to leave the field of technological battle. We have to be on the leading edge and we have to continue to put money into research and development. We have to, it has to be uh, a continued area where the government places a priority, but of course also in our system, and I'm glad of this, it's a big corporate responsibility as well. So we have to continue to invest in science and technology and research, and we have to, we have to stay on the leading edge. Mm -hmm. And Aaron from the Nuclear Threat Initiative has a question. Um, how escalatory do you believe a cyber attack on a U.S. critical space-based asset like early warning capabilities would or could be? How might the U.S. and Russia engage to reduce this risk through strategic stability talks? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, it will be important to take up these kinds of topics in uh, new strategic stability talks because uh, it is a situation where there's an equality of capability in some sense developing with the United States, uh, Russia and China particularly having uh, very capable uh, and increasingly capable uh, platforms uh, in, in orbit and having the capability essentially to mess with each other's assets. I'll put it that way very nicely. So it is important, I think, to continue to, um, uh, well, not to continue, but to really to launch into some very um, intensive discussions on this matter. I would argue here, this is a topic not only for bilateral discussions with the Russian Federation, but also for engaging China, again, whether that's in a, in a trilateral setting with Russia, whether it's in a P5 setting, or whether it's a bilateral conversation between Beijing and, and uh, Washington, I, I think it's very important that we set out uh, what, uh, how we see the threat, how we see the dangers emanating from that threat, how we would be concerned about our nuclear command and control, and how we would think that our counterparts would also be concerned about the reliability of their nuclear command and control. And it's when you have that confluence of interest that you can get to some agreement that you'll leave these assets alone. And in fact, historically, there have been areas of, of sanctuary where uh, assets, particularly space-based assets, have been left alone. And uh, so I think we should be uh, refreshing our understanding of, of the importance of that and, and working on that as a priority objective for, for the future. And what about um, policy and force structure in terms of fast-changing technology? What are the implications there? Well, it's a good question. We are embarking on a modernization of uh, our nuclear forces in the United States. The Chi uh, sorry, the Chinese are mo modernizing, although uh, they haven't built up uh, to the levels anywhere near those of the United States or the Russian Federation. Russia, of course, has also uh, just completed a modernization of their strategic nuclear arsenal. So I think there's a there's a mixture here. It's interesting that we are modernizing very traditional weapon systems, building a new submarine, building submarine launch ballistic missiles, building a new manned bomber. Also, apparently, that bomber will have the capability to fly without a pilot. So there's cases here where we have quite traditional technologies that are mixing with new capability to operate in autonomous ways. Uh, there is discussion, of course, of building a new intercontinental ballistic missile, although there's debate over that. But again, that's a 70-year-old te 70 technology 
uh, if it is built and deployed, it will essentially hark back to that earlier period. So we are facing a very much a mixed picture here, and I think this is a conversation you've had throughout the last two days, that it's not a question of falling off a cliff and all, you know, falling off a cliff into a realm of new and emerging technology. We are mixing new and old, and that is going to continue to be the case. But what the implications of that in future will be uh, will be very important. The hallmark of the bomber force was always its recallability, that it could be launched in a crisis, even a message convey conveyed to the counterpart that the bomber force has been launched in a crisis. But then should de-escalatory actions be taking place, the bombers can be recalled. And that was always seen as a great advantage for a manned bomber force. Now, if it's an autonomous bomber force, I'm sure it can be recalled as well. That can be programmed into the system, so to say. But uh, I think we will just, uh, to return to my initial point, we will just have a combination of the old and the new. And uh, so I don't necessarily see uh, implications for some of the older systems and, and how they operate. Yes, they'll be more, perhaps uh, they will be more precise uh, in their targeting, their propulsion systems will be more reliable, their uh, materials out of which they are constructed will be more reliable, but uh, in some ways I don't see major changes for some of the weapon systems going forward. I, I, we're getting lots of great questions from uh, the audience. I have a quick follow-up on the point that um, that you just made about the we're mixing old and new technology, but I'm thinking as we are modernizing and planning to modernize, it takes time to actually build the new, more modern um, uh, equipment. And while we're building, the technology continues to change. Where do you find that balance in terms of, okay, I'm going to decide to use this technology that's cutting edge, it's fresh right now, but by the time we build what we need, there's always the risk that the technology will be outdated. It's the scourge of the current acquisition process, and I'm sure many of uh, colleagues watching who who work in acquisitions uh, in uh, the Department of Defense or elsewhere will understand the problem acutely. Certainly we saw it at NATO that weapon systems are many years in development, and you try to stay on top of, of the cycles. It, uh, I think cyber technology is a great example. You try to stay on top of the cycles of software development but it is extraordinarily difficult to do so. There have been some, uh, I think, you know, interesting developments in recent years, so-called uh, the cyber, I'm sorry, uh, spiral acquisition uh, methodologies and procedures that that try to incorporate new technologies as uh, they are emerging on the scene. But it is difficult to do so, and frankly, the biggest, I I think, the biggest. Uh, step forward, I can imagine, is is trying to look for ways to simplify and speed up acquisition processes so that you can, and, and being able to incorporate changes in a judicious way uh, so that uh, some of these problems that have come about over time in uh, the way we try to build and develop uh, our military forces would be, would be uh, addressed. But I'm not uh, someone who's a great expert in this, these areas. I'd be happy to hear from uh, viewers who uh, may have some comments on this themselves. Well, I will go to our next question from the audience. Uh, let's see here. 
Leah from Stanford University, is a PhD candidate, is asking, um, nuclear arms control and nuclear deterrence are often used as a model to understand other types of emerging technologies. Which technologies, if any, do you think this has the potential to be a useful model for? Should we be building on what we've learned in the nuclear space or trying to develop new models from scratch? Hmm. Well, people often ask this question when they're talking about arms control and can we use the model of nuclear arms control for something like cyber arms control? Frankly, I, my view is the answer is no, because when we were uh, you know, developing nuclear arms control measures over the years, arms limitation and arms reduction, we were looking at large items of hardware, items that were easily accountable, they were easily eliminated and destroyed, and you could even watch from outer space as a large missile was being destroyed. So we are now getting to more difficult problems in the nuclear arms control space as we're trying to directly limit nuclear warheads, which are small items, often uh, held in containers if they're in storage, uh, very difficult to track and trace, very sensitive facilities where they are uh, stored. So there are some challenges even in the nuclear arms control world, I think we can get our arms around them and proceed and, and have some continuing success in that arena. But when you're looking at cyber uh, technology, you're looking more at software than at hardware. And it's uh, impossible for me to think about how you would use some of these older tools of hardware limitation and control in uh, the in the cyber arena. So I think it's uh, quite different, uh, you know, when you think about some of these new and emerging technologies. That said, if uh, some of these uh, new technologies are uh, associated with large items of hardware, I don't know why some of the some of the procedures we've developed and precedents over time of the nuclear arms control world couldn't be applied here. But I do think that. Um, I do think that in general, we have to be cautious about trying to apply the lessons of, of the nuclear arms control um, decades uh, to this new era. Um, the last thing I'll say is actually, you know, nuclear, <laughs> nuclear technology, nuclear uh, missiles and uh, various delivery platforms and the nuclear warheads themselves, that's an old technology. It's 70 years old at this point. Yes, there have been steady improvements over the years, but this is not something that I consider on the leading edge. Uh, the leading edge is where you've been putting your attention the last couple uh, days on, on the new uh, quantum technologies that are emerging, on uh, AI, on uh, autonomous systems, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, to me, nuclear weapons are kind of the technology of, uh, of the past. Mm -hmm. Still very potent. I'm not arguing with their potency. And as I keep repeating, they are indeed that most fearsome of, of weapons of mass destruction, but nevertheless, they are an older technology. Daniel from UC Irvine asks, the U.S. has a long history of using force short of war in response to attacks and imminent threats. For example, limited stakes have been part of administrations from Reagan onward in context of terrorism and WMDs. First part of the question, should we distinguish when talking about kinetic attacks between war and force short of war? And two, could we imagine missile strikes or drone strikes or special forces raids being a just response to a cyber attack, which is short of war? 
So there's a lot, a lot there. <laughs> Uh, there, there is a lot there, and again, we're uh, in the realm of uh, speculating about various scenarios that it, it makes it, you know, hard for me uh, to dive to dive in. But I will return to the point I made before: is that you you want to try to make your your toolkit uh, for deterrence and defense as wide ranging as possible, and then uh, try to ensure that your uh, potential adversary is not in doubt about your willingness uh, and uh, your readiness to use that toolkit uh, if if need be. To me, that's the essence of, of deterrence overall. But when we look at the history of, uh, of recent years, uh, I think you also see some precedents there in terms of the way, uh, you know, I'm not in any way speaking approvingly of some of the methods that have been used, but, you know, drone attacks have been used quite extensively to respond to terrorist threats of various kinds, you know, so there are past precedents out there. Again, I think it takes a very thoroughgoing study to say, an analysis to say which of those precedents has been uh, beneficial to our thinking about the future of conflict and which has been deleterious. And uh, again, I'm, uh, I'm not going to dive into talking about hypothetical scenarios. It, while you won't dive into talking about hypotheticals, who are you hoping is actually thinking about these hypothetical situations and coming up with um, answers to give to the U.S. government? Or who do you think um, uh, in, the, in the NATO allies, who are you hoping is actually thinking about these things and coming up with viable viable answers to the, these types of questions? Well, we've done a lot in recent years to build up our, uh, I think, our capabilities to think through these issues. The Cyber Command that was created in the United States now a decade ago, again, creating cyber as a domain of operations in NATO, also creating space as a domain of operations in NATO, but the Space Command established during the Trump administration. So there's uh, institutional capability being built up, and one hopes institutional capacity as well. I do want to mention for this audience, and I'm, again, I'm interested uh, if, you've, uh, if you've wrestled with it in the last two days, uh, the issues that arise nowadays in the USG and in, uh, well, in any government institution, including at NATO, about how to hire the best people who are wrestling with these issues to come into government at a time when they can be making a lot more money elsewhere. Uh, and I know that uh, Department of Defense, for example, has tried to come up with some innovative ways to attract people from Silicon Valley to come into the Pentagon, perhaps work for a couple of years and then return uh, out to Silicon Valley again. NATO was looking at ways to do that, to bring in talent, give them ex some experience working inside uh, an international institution, and then they can return uh, to uh, to their previous, uh, previous uh, places of employment. But I think, I just want to mention, I think uh, we've got the right institutional ideas. We've got the right kind of uh, notion that we need to build up this kind of capability and capacity in government. But I do have a question whether we're able to attract the expertise that we need inside government because uh, simply governments don't pay nearly as much as the private sector. It's a simple problem, but a very complicated one to solve. 
And that question came up in our first panel today. If our audience members uh, are who were with us uh, in the with the panel that Suzanne Spaulding moderated, uh, we had a fabulous question from uh, a person who asked, you know, why should I, a newly minted um, PhD person or newly minted master's degree person, um, come out of, you know, a pre prestigious university? Uh, and join the government when I can make $200,000 working in a private security company right off the bat. And uh, the discussion talked about acknowledging the reality that that question presents, but also talking about the potential to earn even more in the private sector if you do spend a few years in government learning about the issues in government and how issues are dealt with in the government, that that's valuable information you can then take with you to the private sector. Absolutely, that's the case. And I think that's an important point. But the other thing I think is is really helpful is that ways of work are changing. Uh, the pandemic itself has, has driven our our uh, ways of work in a different direction. But already before the pandemic, it was clear to me that uh, younger people are not, as I was thinking, well, I never thought this way, but many people of my generation thought, okay, you get in at the ground floor in government and you stay in government from GS7 until you get to the senior executive service. So you spend your whole 40 years uh, of your career inside uh, government. And of course, it's important to get your pension and that kind of thing. But that was the mindset of my generation. And I don't see that across uh, the younger people I deal with at Stanford, other students I work with, uh, certainly my own children. The idea is, well, yeah, you may spend a few years somewhere and then you go somewhere else to get new experience, yes, to earn new money, better money. Uh, but I do think that our ways of working are changing thus significantly, and that could help this problem linked up to the point you just made that once you get some experience in government, it will help you uh, to earn more. So that's an important point. I will say that if you have the opportunity to work in a, uh, a really uh, fast-moving area of government policy, there is no adrenaline rush like it. So I, I recommend government service for that purpose as well. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And and a, another person on this earlier panel talked about the the spirit of the mission that is present in working with government that's Absolutely. likely not present in the private sector. Absolutely, and that's that adrenaline rush I'm I'm talking about. It it really can be very important to uh, to life satisfaction. Uh, Aaron from the Nuclear Threat Initiative has another question for us. Uh, what reforms should NATO adopt to better respond to 21st century realities, including cyber information and hybrid warfare? Yeah, that's a great question, Aaron. And I think uh, it revolves, the answer revolves around uh, decision-making practices. And I've actually been very glad in the so-called NATO 2030 process that Secretary General Stoltenberg has had going on that a great deal of thinking has been uh, put into NATO decision-making practices. Of course, the strength of the alliance is in its consensus decision-making and the necessity of consensus being reached among the 30 allies for any important decision. But the notion that uh, groups of allies, perhaps at various junctures, in face of a crisis or conflict, uh, may be willing to act as a coalition of the willing inside NATO with the full support of the entire alliance, 
I think that this is an important innovation that was uh, recommended to the Secretary General, and I do understand is is undergoing some considerable analysis and thinking. We'll see what, what finally is recommended to the North Atlantic uh, Council, to the NATO uh, decision makers as a whole. But I think that area of, of more flexibility in decision making, giving NATO allies more options to work together in certain circumstances when other allies may not want to join, I think that's all very good and does not, in the end of the day, do anything to undermine the principle of consensus decision-making. So I really hope that uh, there will continue to be effort in that area and that that will be the big innovation coming out of the NATO 2030 process. You know, we started this conversation with me asking you about challenges and threats uh, presented by uh, emerging technologies, specifically as they relate uh, to the nuclear sphere. And I, I'm just curious if there is any one particular issue that you worry about that you, that actually keeps you up at night, that you don't hear policymakers talking about, that you wish they would spend some more time talking about how to prepare. Is there anything like that um, uh, that, that keeps you awake at night? Yes, I used to lose sleep over um, what we used to call the threat of nuclear terrorism. I still think, frankly, that is a worthy threat. I'm glad there, there are experts from the Nuclear Threat Initiative watching today because I think the work they do is really important to continue to draw attention to uh, this threat. Frankly, what keeps me awake at night is the fact that nuclear issues tend to be pushed onto the back burner and that there is not that much attention to them, except among uh, a group of, of experts and, and government policymakers. I know many watching today are very engaged and, and, uh, and intensely working uh, on these sets of problems, but it's, it's not uh, widespread. And getting the attention of the public and the willingness of the public to weigh in and to say this is a priority and it needs to be a priority for national policy. That's what concerns me because it is, it, it is um, when these things fall off the radar scope, when nuclear terrorism is suddenly seen as, you know, oh, that was the 1990s problem and we don't have to deal with it anymore. Or when uh, people think about uh, nuclear weapons only in the context of, of some movie they may have seen a few years ago, but they never think about the possibility that there could be nuclear escalation out of crisis and uh, a conventional conflict. These are the problems that I think really are, are very difficult for, for policymakers to confront. And uh, it's very frustrating as somebody who's worked in this area to realize the amount of heavy lifting that it takes to get people charged up with these issues and, and ready to, to really say to Washington or to say to Moscow or say to Beijing or wherever, you need to pay attention to getting these weapon systems under control because they are something that could really result in nuclear catastrophe, as Sam Nunn likes to say. Why have we let nuclear issues kind of be on the back burner? I, I, I will show my age by admitting this, but when I was growing up, the threat of nuclear annihilation was something that was ever present. Well, in some ways, it's a success story for policy, right? The nuclear weapon has not been used in uh, conflict since World War II. We have not had a, a serious uh, nuclear crisis since the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
there have been a number of, uh, of threats that have been out there. And again, I count uh, the threat of, of nuclear terrorism or fissile material theft and misuse. Uh, these were threats that we confronted with the breakup of the Soviet Union, by the way, very successfully working with Russia during that era, as well as the other states of the former Soviet Union. So um, there, there have been episodes where the public attention has been caught, but then other issues come to the fore. Right now it's climate change. And, you know, out here in California, we're burning up already in May in a severe drought. And the, these are, you know, these are the issues that are next door to every man, woman, and child in, in California. And they're concerned about them, but they're not concerned that a nuclear weapon is going to drop on their head tomorrow. I think they should be. Uh, because uh, these are uh, imminent threats. They are kept at a very high level of readiness, as we know. But uh, in fact, uh, the stable relationship in this arena between the United States and Russia has also been sustained. And that's a good thing. I'm not arguing with the stability of our nuclear relationship. But uh, how we get more public attention to these areas, this is something that I have really been grappling with a lot. I won't say it keeps me up every night, Beverly, because not much keeps me up every night, but uh, but it is something that I worry about pretty persistently. Yeah, uh, and I think it's a uh, I think it's a worry that I think I that I probably share with you. Um, question uh, from Leah: She wants to know, uh, as we've talked about uh, nuclear versus emerging technology, but how can advances in technology? aid in verification issues or other challenges in nuclear arms control? Is there anything that is making you optimistic? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, and Leah must know of some of my work uh, here at Stanford. I've just taught a uh, class uh, during winter quarter where we looked at the potential for new technologies that can contribute to verification and monitoring down to the level of nuclear warheads, yes but also helping us with some of the, the other problems that we have out there, such as how do we address North Korea's nuclear weapons program? And a lot of this work you can already see done by uh, amazing research groups at, for example, the Center for Nonproliferation Studies at Middlebury Monterey, work at Stanford itself, 38 North in, in Washington, where groups, teams of analysts are looking at the a large amount of information coming in now from commercial satellite constellations and doing a lot of analysis and research, again, using big, big data techniques to help to understand what's going on with the North Korean nuclear program. So I do think that there are a lot of new uh, potential tools out there. I do wonder about their negotiability. You know, what's it going to take to sell the North Koreans on, on using commercial satellite constellations as uh, an aspect of how their systems are monitored? We'll see, because a lot uh, has not been tested yet at the negotiating table. But I am quite optimistic about the future of verification and monitoring, because I think we do have such great technological tools available to us now. Well, as we begin to wrap up here, I can't let you get away without talking about your new book that is coming out this month, uh, Negotiating the New START Treaty. Um, you were the first woman to lead a major nuclear arms negotiation. Um, what was that like? And you you write in this book about that experience. Talk, talk to us about that. 
Well, in some ways, I don't know if it was uh, different from any uh, diplomat, any negotiator. The experience of negotiating the treaty was very much helped by the fact that we had high-level attention throughout. President Obama was super focused on getting this treaty done, so I often felt like the president himself was breathing down my neck, although that wasn't the case. He had a lot of a lot of concerns, of course, but certainly Washington was very focused on what we were doing in Geneva. And uh, frankly, so was President Medvedev. Uh, both presidents uh, agreed that they would get the new START treaty negotiated before START went out of force in December of 2009. So we had a hard deadline, and we were, we were uh, really fighting to reach that deadline. Unfortunately, it did pass, but we did get the treaty done a few months later, and it was into force uh, by February of 2011. So um, in some ways, it was a traditional negotiation. I will say the differences had to do, I think, with how I was regarded at the negotiating table. And here um, I have some funny vignettes in the book the most funny one from my perspective is, you know, the Russians knew me. I've long been an expert working on nuclear arms control matters and, and the strategic nuclear forces of the USSR and Russia. What I didn't expect was that my own delegation of men would say to me, you need to show more temper at the negotiating table. And you're, you know, you're being too, too easygoing. And so one day I just decided to throw a temper tantrum and I, you know, pounded my hand on the table and I turned bright red and uh, my delegation were jubilant afterwards. They just thought that was great. But I just wanted to say that, you know, male negotiators have all kinds of techniques and all kinds of range. Some of them are, are real prima donnas and they love to throw temper tantrums. I'm mixing female and male metaphors here, but and some are very measured in their approach and never throw temper tantrums. I'm pretty much on the measured side, but when I needed to throw a temper tantrum, I could do that. And when I proved that, the men on my delegation were happy. New START will not be extended any further. The terms of the treaty uh, were, it was written so that it could be extended for five years, um, but not an additional extension beyond that. So uh, I'm very glad that President Biden and President Putin have decided that it's a top priority to uh, negotiate a follow-on to the New START Treaty. It will not be easy. I've mentioned several times that warheads should come into the new treaty, limits on warheads should come into the new treaty, and this will require some complicated work on verification techniques because of the sensitivity of nuclear warheads and the facilities where they are stored. So that, that's not going to be uh, an easy lift, but it is something that, that will have to be worked on. But the two presidents said it as a priority in the next five years to get that follow-on treaty negotiated. Uh, and so I do think we have the time to do it now. And so uh, I, think, I think that's the most important thing. Well, Rose Scott Miller, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I always learn things when I talk to you, which is why I love talking to you. Thank you so much for being here with us here at the Future Strategy Forum today. Really, really appreciate it. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.